Good morning, everyone. Glad you could join us today. If you were with us last Sunday, Easter Sunday, uh, you probably received a dollar bill. We put a dollar bill in every program, and some of them were real ones. Some of them, like this, were counterfeit, but the counterfeit ones looked pretty real at a distance. I mean, they're for motion picture use only, but our concern was that someone would accidentally get a hold of one of these fake $1 bills, put it in their wallet or purse, and then try to spend it. And that's a problem because that's a federal crime and uh, could get you in a lot of trouble. And so we didn't want to be a part of that. So we warned you uh, last week to be very careful not to put those fake ones in your wallet or purse and accidentally spend them. And hopefully no one got in trouble this week. I haven't heard that anyone got in trouble, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that. We are considering, however, a kind of counterfeiting that is not illegal but has greater consequences than printing fake money. And that is counterfeit Christianity. Now, some do this intentionally. They pretend to be followers of Christ when, in fact, they know that they're not. But most of this occurs unintentionally. And that's because there's a great deal of confusion about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, it is not our business to go around trying to determine who is and who is not an authentic Christian. What is our business is to be clear about what it means to be a Christian and then make our own decision about whether or not we will follow Christ. Now, to be clear, Christians are not the moral elite. They are, however, those who have come to some conclusions about Jesus Christ, and those conclusions have begun to change them over time. Now, the test of authenticity that we are using for this series comes from a 2,000-year-old document that was written 20 years after Christ walked here on earth and told everyone himself what it means to follow him. The book we are looking at is a New Testament book, the book of Colossians. We're focusing particularly on chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And that's because these 17 verses begin with these two words, if, then. And it sets up the theme for the entire segment. It says, if really you're a Christian, then this is what is true of you. The 17 verses that follow list the identifying features that are present in the life of someone who truly follows Jesus Christ. Now, as I said last Sunday, these 17 verses are divided into three major categories. And each category has three identifying features. So there are three sets of three for a total of nine identifying features. Let me review again how, the, how these 17 verses are broken up into categories. Category 1 identifies the three decisions that Christians make. This is in verses 1 through 7. These are the conclusions that authentic Christians come to about Christ and the decisions that reflect those conclusions. The next major category in this 17 verses are the three practices that Christians do. This is verse 5 through 14. This is how being an authentic Christian affects daily life. This is the details of how being a Christian affects you. And then the last segment are the three perspectives that Christians have. This is verse 15 through 17. This is the angle from which Christians perceive life. They look at life and situations very differently from God's perspective. Now, last week we looked at the three decisions that a Christian makes, and they are seen in the three words that precede Christ's name in the first four verses. And they all begin with the same letter, the letter W. And these are the three words, with Christ, then where Christ, and then when Christ. So Christians are those who look at the evidence, the abundant evidence that supports the life of Christ about 
what he did and what he said and the miracles he performed and particularly his resurrection. And they look at all of this evidence and they conclude that there is a logical explanation. And that is that what he said about himself is true. He is God in flesh. And so having come to that conclusion, they decide that they want to attach their lives to him, to be with him, to accept the forgiveness that he offers and the future that he offers. They decide to be with him. And that then in turn changes what's important to them. They begin to value what heaven values because that's where Christ is. The values of heaven begin to shape the values that they have here on earth. And then that then in turn changes their expectations on any given day. They are willing to wait for when Christ, the last W, when Christ returns for everything to work out. Now, like anyone, they would prefer things to work out now if, if, if they could, but they don't demand it because to be a follower of Christ means that you're living for a larger purpose than just your own life. Sure, you want your life to work out great, but if it doesn't, you're living for a larger purpose. You're willing to wait for when Christ returns to wrap up history and set everything that's wrong right. Now, with these three decisions in place, Christians go to work on the implications of these decisions. They put in place three practices. And these practices are seen in three lists that are found in verses 5 through 14 of Colossians 3. And it honestly is, this is the place where a lot of confusion rests. It's the practices of an authentic Christian that people get confused about. Because some tend to think that it is the practices that are what make a person a Christian, authentic Christian. But that's not the case. It is the decisions that make a person an authentic Christian. The practices are just the natural result of those decisions. They in themselves don't make someone a Christian any more than the things that I do to grow my marriage makes me any more married. I am married. But it is my daily practices that determine whether or not my marriage is a healthy one or not or a growing one or not. You see, it wasn't enough for me to decide to be with my wife 32 years ago and say, I do, and for her to do the same, to be with me. I had lived as a single guy by that time for a number of years. And so in order to act on that decision, to truly be with her, I needed to change the practices of my single life. It wouldn't be appropriate for me to decide to be married and then continue to act like a single person. That decision changed my daily life, my practices. And one of the things that changed is I was pretty surprised. It turned out I'm, I was a pretty selfish individu- individual. I, I didn't realize this. I thought I, I was not selfish at all. But you see, as a single guy, I could do pretty much whatever I wanted. If, as long as it was a day off and I wasn't at work, I, I could wake up on a Saturday and decide whatever I wanted to do, and I, could do, I didn't have to check with anybody because that's what single people can do. But as a married man... It was very surprising to discover that didn't work. I couldn't just wake up and decide, I'm going to go play tennis and not tell my wife, just kind of walk out the door and off I go. You know, I'm with somebody now. That, that had to change things. And so becoming less selfish over time was a very good thing for me. But it certainly didn't happen automatically the day I got married. You know, it doesn't work where you say, I do. And then the next day, you're not selfish anymore. No, no, it takes time. I had to implement new practices. 
Like one, for example, is using a calendar to plan our time off together. I'd, I'd never used a calendar to plan my time off. I kind of knew when it was and what I wanted to do and why write it down. Off we go. But now, in order to coordinate a couple of schedules, it turned out that a calendar was important. So that was a new practice, something brand new for me. And then I had to carve out the time, we both had to carve out the time, to sit down and talk with each other about what we both wanted to do with our time off. It wasn't just what I wanted to do, it's well, what, what would you like to do? And we had to kind of work on this together. And th- these were just two of many, many, many new practices that came with the decision to be with my wife, to be married. Now, not only was I selfish, but as a single guy, I didn't know much about love. Now, maybe a lot of single guys do, but I was not one of them. I mean, I thought, again, I thought I was a very loving person. But it turned out that as long as everybody liked me and agreed with me, I was loving. (laughs) If someone disagreed with me, or worse, they got upset with me, well, the deal's off. And I didn't realize this, but actually what I thought was loving on my part was really just I'd worked out a set of deals with people. Now, we never signed a contract, but I had one in my mind. And if they broke the terms of the contract, deal's off. I no longer cared about them or loved them or served them or helped them in any way. And that's, that's just not loving. And so much to my surprise, I didn't always feel loving towards the woman that I had just declared my undying love to. And that was, I mean, I'd heard about that, but I thought everyone was, you know, in poor marriages and I was going to be in the best marriage ever. And so it was a surprise to me to discover that I didn't feel very loving sometimes to this person I had just decided to love. Why? Had my words not been serious? Had I not meant it when I decided to be with my wife and I I made the commitment of marriage? No, I, I had meant those words. The problem was this, it's just that the patterns of my life up to that point had shaped who I really was. And so it was my history, not my intentions, that kept winning the day. I intended to love her, but I hadn't learned how to love anybody, really. And so because I hadn't learned, well, in the pressure, I didn't love. The same kind of thing happens when someone decides to attach their life to Christ. Their past is forgiven. But it's not forgotten by them. And what I mean by that is the past has shaped them to be who they are. And they have developed patterns of life that just don't go away the moment they decide to be with Christ. And so even though you might keep intending to be a very different person, it is your history, not your intentions, that will keep winning. Sometimes people decide to be with Christ and they think that they're going to wake up the next day and they're going to be a completely different person. Well, there is a lot of differences because they're with Christ now. But the patterns of their life woke up with them that very next day and continued to dominate the way they live life. So if we're going to change, if we're going to act on the decision that we've made to be with Christ, we're going to have to get into the details of our life, the patterns, the daily patterns of, of how we live. That's where the change must occur. And that's what these lists are about in verses 5 through 14. The key word that's repeated in these verses is the word put, P-U-T, put. You'll see one list start with the phrase put to death, and then another list starts with the, with the term put away or put off, and then the final list starts with the phrase put on. Now, each put is at the beginning 
of the list, and these lists are common long-term patterns of behavior that must now be put or placed in a different location in your life. Some of them just need to be added. They're brand new patterns. If you're going to truly be with Christ, if you're going to enact that decision that you made. Last month, I came home to a completely rearranged living room. The couch, which had been up against the same wall for 15 years now, had been put at an angle in the middle of the living room. (laughs) And the two chairs that my wife and I sit in all the time had been put off into one corner. Now, thankfully, I'm not quite as selfish as I was 32 years ago, so I didn't open my mouth. I didn't say anything, but I didn't like it. I mean, I walked in, and I realized immediately, this is not good. This, this is going to be a problem. And the reason was because I had grown used to the way things had been for 15 years. Now, in all honesty, a month after the rearrangement, it's a better arrangement. My wife was right. It, it really is a, a better way to arrange the living room. But the truth is, I'm still getting used to it. There's still some times I walk in there and I go, this is just wrong. <laughs> when it's fine, it's just, it's just a different putting of things. It's a different arrangement. Now, a similar thing happens when you attach your life to Christ. He has a different perspective on life. He has a different set of values than you, you have naturally. Your values are based on what you've learned and the context you've grown up in. But Christ's perspective and his values calls for a different arrangement of the details of your life. And so what happens is what has been for you a comfortable maybe arrangement of your life over the years, maybe years or decades, now has to be arranged. And when I say comfortable, I don't mean that your life is working comfortably. I mean, your life can be completely falling apart but you're very comfortable with how you do life, even if it's not working for you. We all get comfortable with whatever is familiar to us. And the more years you've lived, the more comfortable and used to you are to the way you do life. And like me with that living room, this change, this putting in different places, this rearrangement of our life is met with some resistance. Not so much because we disagree with it, but because we're used to the old ways. And the new ways are just, they're just uncomfortable to us. So the three put lists are designed to accomplish a very large shift in our life. And I've got two phrases that I think capture not everything, but kind of most of of what God is really wanting to shift in our life after we decide to be with Christ. Before we are with Christ, The natural approach we have to life is this. We love things and we use people. Just, I mean, I thought I was loving people, but really a deal is, as long as you're useful for me, then we have a deal. It's not really love. Love is a commitment. But our tendency is we fall in love with the things of this world and we use the people in our lives. But the shift that God wants to bring is to reverse that. After Christ, he wants us to become people who love people and use things. That's a very big shift. And that switch doesn't just happen when you make a decision to follow Christ. It's not just one decision. It begins as a decision, but it happens or it does not happen 
in the trenches of the patterns of your daily life. Now, the first of the three put lists are the patterns that are designed to reduce our attachment to the things of this world, our love for the things of this world, so that we can be free to love people instead of use people and love things. The last two lists we're going to look at next week are the patterns. Some of them are things that we put off, and some of them are things that we put on that are designed to increase our love for people. We can't just decide to not suddenly love people. We've got to practice these patterns to learn how to love people. But today we're looking at put list number one, the list that's designed to loosen our attachment and our love for the things of this world. Colossians 3, 5 through 6 describes this list. Here's what it says. Put, the first word put, put to death, therefore what is earthly in you. And here's the list. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So let's work through this. Put to death what is earthly in you. Well, what is earthly? What does that mean? Well, simply something from earth. The things that belong here and can't leave when you die. You can't take these things with you. You know, this building is earthly. We can't transport it into the next life. The money in my bank account and your bank account is earthly. The last day you live here is the last day you can spend any of it. After you die, it stays here. You go on. It's earthly. My car is earthly. My house is earthly. You know, almost everything you see is earthly. So why then would we want to put these things to death? I mean, we need them. The problem is not earthly things. You know, as long as we live on earth, we're going to need earthly things. And it's not just that we need them, it's God has given us earthly things for our enjoyment, for our delight. That's why there's so much beauty around us. It's not just functional, it's, it's designed to bring joy and blessing to us. The problem is this, we have moved some of these earthly things from objects that we use and need and enjoy and bless us to objects that we now have attached ourselves to and we worship. And that's the problem. In doing so, we have taken something that is earthly into our hearts. It's not just out there. It's not just enjoyment. It's not just meeting needs. It's we've let it deep inside our hearts. And we've become so attached to these things that we can't let go of them now. They become at the very center of us. And the reason is that the reason we can't let go is that what is earthly is now in us. I mean, if something gets inside you, you can't just let it go. I mean, if you're holding on to at arm's length, you can let it go. But once it's in you, it's in you. You can't let go of it. You now need it on a soul level, not just to accomplish an earthly function. That's why it says, put to death not what is earthly. That would be illogical. It says, put to death what is earthly, and the key phrase is, in you. Put to death the things that you have allowed deep into your heart and you now need at a soul level, not just to accomplish an earthly function. And for example, what was intended as food, which is a good thing, it's designed to nourish our body, we need it every day. Not only just nourishment, but food tastes great and it's designed to be enjoyment and 
relationships can happen around meals, and it's to be a good thing, but sometimes we can take food and we can elevate it to a level beyond just something that we use at arm's length. Eating can become something that we use to handle stress and help us feel better when we feel bad. And then it begins to take over and control us. Or maybe it's money, something, again, that's very good, and God gives us to bless us. But it becomes, to, you know, we, we, we put it in the center of our heart, and it begins to run our lives. Or maybe it's sex, or maybe it's a substance. The point is this. What has an, an important place in this world, on this earth, has now moved inside your heart, and you can't stop, stop obsessing and living for it. The word for these kinds of attachments is idolatry. You have made an idol, a god, out of these things. And this is what we all tend to do. This is the last word on this list. This is what this list describes, is idolatry. A working definition of idolatry is this, is to assign God-level status to something in this world. That's what it means to make an idol out of something. It doesn't have to be an actual idol that you can see that's in the shape of some weird deity. It's anything that you assign God-level importance to is an idol. So what can be done about this? I mean, we can't just set these objects of worship aside. We can't just put them in a closet once we become a Christian because they're idols. They're in us. We are attached to them. So we have to, as it says at the beginning of this list, we have to put these things to death. Now, that's a strange, strange term, death, as applied to idols. I mean, the idols are not alive. The things on this earth are not alive. Generally, they're, they're inanimate for the most part. So why, why do we put them to death? Why not just kind of throw them out? Why not just get rid of them? Why the term death? It's because when we elevate something in creation to the level of the creator, we give it a kind of life in our own hearts. These attachments now have the power of a living entity. And like all living things, you can't just throw them out. They, grow, they grow stronger the more you feed them and weaker the less you feed them. The New Testament was written in the Greek language, and so this list was first written in Greek. And the Greek word here for death, there are several Greek words for death, but this one describes a certain kind of death. It literally means to, to slowly drain the strength from. It's that kind of death. Literally, to starve to death. So it's not talking about some big single act that kills the power that these things have in your life. I mean, there, there is no spiritual gun that you can just take and <clears throat> that desire is gone. That would be great. Make a lot of money on that thing. But that's not the way it works. You have to slowly, slowly drain the strength from these things. If you're attached to something here on earth, and we all have our attachments, it's going to take more than just one move to sever that attachment, more than one decision. You're going to have to stop nourishing that attachment. So this list that we're going to look at is not just a random list of things that you should stop doing. We read this list and go, okay, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But what this, this list is in this order for a reason. It is, it is the description really of the power structure, the life force of these living attachments and how they grow as we feed them and therefore how they diminish as we stop feeding them. So I've put this list in order on your listing guide 
So as we go through these, you can see just visually how they're attached to each other because one feeds the next, it feeds the next, and it feeds the next. So let's look at the beginning. The first item on the list is sexual immorality. Point number one, th this is how idolatry begins. We step out of bounds. God has established a boundary, we step out of it. Now the word for sexual immorality here is one Greek word, it's the word pornea, and it's where we get the word pornography from. But it's talking about far more than just pornography. The word in Greek means unlawful desire or a desire that breaks the law, or a desire that's, that's beyond the boundaries that God has established. Now, it does most commonly refer to sexual activity outside of the boundaries of marriage, because no matter what time in history, no matter what cult culture, this is the, the dominant desire that people break beyond the boundaries of. That's the most common translation of this term. But it's also translated, many places, as the word idolatry in English. Now, the reason that one word in Greek can mean either sexual immorality or idolatry is that when we take any desire, whether it's sexual desire or food desire or money desire or any other desire, and we take it outside the boundaries that God has established, we are elevating that desire above God, and in doing so, we are making it into an idol. Now, we think that we're just doing what we want to do. We think we're just following our desires. But what we are really doing is we are deciding that this is more important than whatever God has said. And so we are choosing to worship it over God. And we, when we do that, we give something life that begins to grow inside of us. Now, this doesn't just happen with sexual desires. It happens with any desire. You know, for example, money. You know, if we step beyond the financial boundaries of spending and of preparing for the future and of giving that God has set up and we just kind of let money take over while well, greed begins to take over in our lives and it becomes our idol. Now, why, why can't we just cross the boundaries that God has set up and go and get what we want and then return back and live a life unaffected by that decision? I mean, why do these desire excursions, let's call them, of ours, take over more and more and more of our life. Why can't we just go get what we want and come back? Unaffected. Well, the reason is to us, rules, especially God's rules, we think of them just as arbitrary barriers that are designed to limit our freedom. But in reality, God's rules are more like laws of gravity or laws of nature that describe the moral fabric of reality. You know, laws of nature describe the physical fabric of reality. But there's much more to what is real than the physical material world. And God's laws describe the moral fabric of reality. Now, when it comes to physical reality, you may have a desire to fly, but if you act on that desire and jump off a 10-story building, that desire will take your life. That's why they put fences on the top of building, to protect you. But it's a boundary, uh, yes, for your safety. It's there. The invisible laws of God that govern our desires, like sex and money and food and relationships, are every bit as real as the laws of nature. We just can't test them in a, in a scientific experiment. But they're every bit as real. 
You cross the barriers that God has established, and they will take your life. Literally, they will take over your life, just not as fast as your 10-story flight will. But they'll take your life. The barriers that God has established are there for our good. They are the moral fence on the top of the 10-story moral building. Yes, they do limit our freedom, but that is a good thing. And so this is where idolatry begins. In some area of our life, God has said, hey, this is for your good. Enjoy this within these boundaries. Let me bless you with this within these boundaries. And we decide that's not enough. We decide we want to go off road with this desire. We want to go out of the boundaries. And that's where idolatry begins. It begins to plant the seed of this is more important than God. And it, it begins to grow on the inside when we do that. That's level one. That's where it starts. We step out of bounds. Level two is we go morally passive. Now, every Christian that I know steps out of bounds morally. Not because they want to. We don't want to. But the problem is we all have a history of fence jumping when it comes to God's boundaries. And that history has a strong pull to it. But what does distinguish real from counterfeit Christians is not the absence of sin, but whether or not they go morally passive in their struggle with sin. You see, counterfeit Christians tend to think of Jesus as a kind of magic wand that they can wave over their life, making it okay without any effort on their part. Some of them you know, kind of view Jesus as have granted them a, you know, a diplomatic immunity passport. So they can go into any country, cross any borders, and they can't be charged with any crime because they've got a diplomatic passport, and therefore they have immunity. A lot of people view Jesus this way. That's counterfeit Christianity. Authentic Christians take their struggle with sin seriously, not because they have to earn the forgiveness of God. That's been granted to them in the sacrifice of Christ. No, they take their sin seriously because they, the decision they made was to be with Christ, not to use Christ so that they could sin as much as they want. So whenever someone says, well, I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I want, I'm like, uh-oh, I don't think we understood the decision that we made. Just like a person who just got married and is trying to live a single life, it's like, I don't think you understood what you were deciding when you said, I do. This is a with-the-person decision. And this second level comes from the second word on the list. The word is impurity. The Greek word has two different meanings. It's used in two different ways. In one way, it's used to describe um, someone who doesn't clean something. It means to not clean. Or it can also mean to not prune, you know, prune a tree or prune a plant or a rose bush. Let's look at the kind of the first way it's used, to not clean. When we go morally passive, what happens is we decide that when we do sin, we're just going to go on. We're not going to clean up the mess. We just go morally passive. But authentic Christians are different. When they step out of bounds and they do sin, they don't want to, but sometimes they do. And when they do, they clean up the mess they've made as best they can. Now, the thing about sin is it can't always be fully cleaned up, but they do what they can. 
It starts by confessing whatever the sin is to God, accepting and being grateful for the forgiveness that He's already given. And then, if it's appropriate and possible, they clear up the wrong that they've done with the people that they've wronged. They go and ask them for forgiveness. And if restitution needs to be made, they make restitution. So they make messes just like everybody else does, but they don't move on trying to forget or pretend that that was no big deal. No, they turn around and they go back and they get on their hands and their knees and they start mopping it up as best they can. Sometimes I'll hear this from someone who's a Christian. They have just fallen into some sin and they're just racked with guilt over it. They just hate the fact that they've, they've sinned again in whatever this area of struggle is. And in their guilt, sometimes they'll say this to me. They say, you know what? I've, I've just done this. I must not be a Christian. Now, I can't look inside anyone's heart and know whether they are or not. But often what I'll say at this point is the very fact that you are struggling with this is probably a good indication that you are. You're taking sin seriously. Authentic Christians take sin seriously. Counterfeit Christians, they just ignore the mess and move on. They justify it. They ignore God's laws, and on they go. Now, authentic Christians not only clean up their moral messes, they prune the things in their life that increase their struggle with sin, that lead to sin. Now, why do we prune trees or rose bushes? Well, it's because, like any plant, they can get overrun with growth that takes the nutrients away from the fruit that's to be produced or the flower that's to be shown. And if you don't prune, then there's either no fruit or not much fruit or the, the flowers aren't really healthy. So you have to cut away some of the growth that's really not that productive so that the nutrients can go to the things that really are productive. And that's the way our lives are. You know, we just get overrun with activities that keep us from growing in our relationship with Christ and weaken our ability to fight sin. I would say that the primary reason that so many people who have made the decision to be with Christ don't really grow beyond that point is this one. That their lives are just busy, just consumed with not sin, not bad things, just things. And they're growing some big weeds, but no real fruit, no real change. And so to, to be morally aggressive means not only to clean up the messes that you make, not only ask for forgiveness when you've sinned, but to look at your life and say, okay, what, what can I cut so that I can have more time to spend understanding what God's Word says about this? or more time in prayer, or more time connecting with the church that I'm a part of and helping other people grow and allowing them to help me grow. I mean, nobody just naturally has time for these things. You, you have to cut things out of, you have to say no to some things in your life in order to say yes to the things that are really important to you. And that's what it means to be morally aggressive. So now these things that you cut out of your life, they're, they're not, again, they're not sinful things. But if you allow your life just to get cluttered, you're going to get pushed to the edge of whatever the sin is that you're struggling with, and then all it's going to take is a swift breeze of desire to sweep over your heart, and boom, there you go. It's because you, 
you need to begin to cut some things from your life and put some margin there between the edge of the line and where you are. Now, if we step out of bounds, and if we go morally passive, then level three comes. We let go. The next word on this list is passion. In our culture, passion is, is kind of the only way you know the true direction of your life. You know, what do you want to do with your life? What are you passionate about? Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing to consider. It's just an incomplete um, thing to consider in that question. Because if you just do whatever you're passionate about, you might get into a lot of trouble. You know, in Scripture, that's a dangerous thing to do because not everything we're passionate about is good. Now, the Greek word here literally means to let go, just to let go. Well, what if you drove your car that way? You, know, you got on Gothard up to speed, and you say, well, I've always wondered which, you know, which direction I should go, so let me just take the hands off the wheel, rather decide, let's just see where things go. But, you know, we do that all the time on the inside and wonder why life just kind of gets a mess. You see, if, if we don't clean up our mess, we don't confess our sin, and we don't actively prune our lives so that we can grow, it's not long before all kinds of wrong passions will start gaining influence in your life. And at that point, it's easy to feel kind of overwhelmed. And your temptation will be just to let go and, and let passion kind of take over. Just go on a, a binge excursion. But if you do that, you're heading for the ditch. Over and over again, authentic Christians grab a hold of the wheel of their life, and they get it out of the ditch, and they get back on track. And then their passions begin, and they grab a hold of the wheel, and they get it back on track. They don't let go. But if you step out of bounds, and if you go morally passive, and if you just take your hands off the wheel of your life and just let it go where it's going to go, then you will end up to level four. And that is, we lose control. You get to this next word, which is evil desire. And what this means is a consuming desire for what is worthless. Your life will be consumed with a desire for things that will not produce any good fruit in your life. You will want to spend your thought and your money and increasingly your time pursuing things that at the end of your life are going to be a waste. Now, at this point, let me be honest, it's almost impossible to stop the pull of moral gravity if you get to level four. It's kind of like sledding down an icy hill. You know, if you've ever had that experience, you're at the top of the hill, it's either icy or, you know, it's... it's you know, melt a little bit, and so the snow is real hard. It's got that icy crust on the top. And you're on a sled, and you're, you're looking, you're making sure you're okay, and you, you start to push off. You've got about two to three inches of decision there before it's too late to say, uh-oh. You know, you, you, can, you can start pushing, and then, well, you got a couple inches, dig your feet down, put your hands down, you can stop. But if you keep going and you let go for very long, well, you're, you're on for the ride. You know, halfway down the hill, it's too late to say, you know, this is a really bad decision. <laughs> well, gravity has now taken over. You're in trouble. But, but, you know, even in the middle of the slide, you have a choice. You can bail. If you ever done that? You, you know, you can just bail off the sled. Now, that can be a painful choice. But at this point, you've got two painful choices. The bail off the slide, painful choice, or the run into the tree at the bottom of the hill, painful choice. 
You've got to choose your pain. This level, this level four, this is the addiction level. This, this is where you lose control. It begins to take over, and it runs your life. But if this is you in some area, it is time to do the drastic. It is time to bail. That's going to hurt. It may cost you some stuff, but you've got to do the drastic. The drastic thing I would recommend is you tell someone that you trust. You, you get help. You get outside of your own mind and out of your own efforts. You need help. Now, this brings us to the very foundation of this list, what this is describing. Coveting. As it says, which is idolatry. Coveting is at the very heart of idolatry. This is what drives this list. This is where the life force, the power of this list really comes from. It's what anchors us to this world and convinces us to spend our entire lives living for, for what is earthly and can never leave here. Now, the Greek word for coveting is a compound word. It's made up of two words. The first word is hold, and the second word is more. Now, why, why hold? And this is a great description of coveting. Is rather than just enjoy something, rather than just use something, rather than just be blessed by something, we want to own it. We want to hold on to it so it can never leave us. That's what coveting is. I, I've got to have that. I, I, I have to hold on to it. Why? Why do we have to hold on to the things of this world? Well, you see, this world is very unstable. And we think that if we could just in the middle of this unstable world that we live in, if we could just hold on to this or hold on to that, then our uncertain life would, would stabilize. At least there'd be something stable in our unstable life. But when we decide that we need to hold on to something here, the holding is never one way. It takes a hold of us. And it not only takes a hold of us. I mean, we reach out for it, and, and it reaches out and says, gotcha. It takes a hold of us. And it keeps demanding more. That's the two words, hold and more. Once you want to hold on to something, to feel better about life, to, to have something stable in your life, from this, rather than God, something in this world, it takes a hold of you and says, all right, now you need more. You've got to hold on to more. You've got to hold on to more. You've got to hold on to more. And it will not let go of us until we let go of it. So how do we get rid of this pull of coveting? Well, the truth is you can't. As long as we are here on earth, we will hear the call of coveting. We will, there will be something and usually some set of things that we want to hold on to. And there'll be some things that we're holding on to that's saying, a little more, a little more, a little more. And this is why in verse 6 it says, on account of these... You know, this whole list, on account of these, really on account of coveting, the wrath of God is coming. What it's saying is that only after God destroys this earth and there is nothing left here to covet, will we finally be done with making idols out of some, some stuff here. That's the only way it's going to end, when the wrath of God comes. So until we leave this place, or until Jesus returns to judge this place, the only solution is for us to put these things to death, to, to continually work on these patterns. Now, I don't know what your idols are. Maybe it's been clear to you as we've been talking. Oh, yeah, that's one. 
There's another one. I don't know what they are. But I do know that they were not constructed in your heart overnight. And therefore, you cannot make a single decision today and be done with them. They're not going to be removed overnight. The work of dismantling the patterns of sin occur primarily on level two. If you're taking notes, I want you to actually circle point number two. Do not go morally passive. This is the most important of the four. Most people think that level one is the most important. So they make a decision to be with Christ, and they think that the real battle is, I'm just not going to sin. And that, that's fine. Make that your goal. But I'm telling you that the real battle is on level two, because you will sin. Now, if you've made a commitment to be with Christ, and you're no longer sinning, I'd like to know about it. I want to see the journal that supports that. And I, if you're married, I want to talk to your spouse, see if that actually is the case. Because I don't believe it. But so many people decide to be with Christ, and then they're so disappointed because they keep sinning. They thought they were going to be done with all of the coveting and all of the evil desires and whatever. It's like, oh, no. You've just now been forgiven, and you've got some help from God. So level two is where the fight is. Do not go morally passive. When you sin, clean it up. So what needs to be cleaned up in your life right now? What sin needs to be confessed? What person do you need to ask forgiveness from? Who do you need to forgive? Or what needs to be pruned from your life? There's always pruning to be done. You know, it's just like your garage. For some reason, stuff just piles up in garages. Who knows why? But it just needs to be cleaned out. The same thing with our life. Just, our life is just accumulated with things that are serving no good purpose. They're not sin. They're not bad. They're just eating away our time and our money and our thought and our resources, and they're keeping us from growing. What, what is it? What needs to be pruned? What one thing? Maybe it's an area of temptation. Maybe like for me recently, watching a series on Netflix, and I was like, you know what? This, is, this, this has gone dark, and it's not good for us. I don't know. Maybe that was for me. I don't know about you. What area of temptation? It's like, yeah, this just this isn't a good use of my time. Do the pruning. Now, no one can do this alone, and that's why next week we're going to talk about the two lists that deal with how we love people, how we relate to others. But it, we first have to begin to loosen our attachment to the things that are here. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we confess that over and over again, we take some good gift that you've given us here, and we bow before it, and we worship it. We give it the importance in our heart that only you deserve. We begin to organize our decisions and our time and our money around it and push you further and further to the edges of our life. And then it begins to take a hold of us. God, I pray for those today who are trapped in some addiction on level four. Pray you'd give them the courage to bail and cry out for help. That you would free the chains that bind them to something here. We don't want to live our lives only for the things that are here. We want to enjoy and use what you've given but not worship them. You, you alone are worthy of worship. Help us, we pray. 
to loosen our attachment to the things of this world. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.